Hello, baby. Want a kiss? Welcome to the Experimental Film Podcast with your host, Ken Hess. Teaching a parakeet to talk is fun, but the old method took too much time and patience. This record is specially designed to teach any healthy, normal parakeet to talk by using a scientific new method that is acknowledged to be far superior because a carefully trained voice, specially chosen for excellence in clarity and diction, repeats over and 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 over the same words, the same phrase, in a manner that most parakeets are most likely to imitate. Check experimentalfilm.info for information, interviews, and episodes. For the next few seconds, this record will be silent. This podcast is dedicated exclusively to experimental film and its makers. Welcome, everyone, to Season 3, Episode 15 of the Experimental Film Podcast. Today's guest is interdisciplinary artist Lisa Burke, whose work results from the collision of video, performance art, and installation. She is interested in the stories that we recite and rebrand and how these inform our conception of the world and the tragicomic perception of ourselves. Recently, Burke has been exploring immersive multimedia approaches using special effects, AR, and 360 video. Her award-winning video work has seen more than 100 screenings and installations at film festivals, media centers, and in galleries and museums internationally, including the Vancouver International Film Festival, Slamdance, Florida Film Festival, International Short Film Week in Regensburg, Time is Love, the New Museum of Networked Art, and Ramai Modern Museum of Art. Burke is an assistant professor of digital and extended media and area chair of the digital and integrated practice area in the Department of Art and Art History at the University of Saskatchewan. Lisa, I am so glad to have you on. Welcome to the Experimental Film Podcast. Hi, Ken. Thank you so much. And thank you for that very warm welcome. I very much appreciate it. Oh, yeah. No problem. I I like it. And I hope I said Saskatchewan correctly. (laughs) Yes, you did. (laughs) When I say that I'm from Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, people usually say, is that a real place? (laughs) Yeah, it is. (laughs) It's kind of fun. Quite a mouthful and difficult to spell, too. (laughs) Yeah. I would hate to be a first grader in in that area and have to write all those words down. Yeah, absolutely. Especially even writing out your address. It's like, oh, goodness. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Okay, so I always start out by having the filmmaker tell us about yourself and your work. So please. Uh, Sure. So I'm quite an unlikely filmmaker, I would say. Almost a a little bit of a comedy of errors has has brought me here. Um, I've been an artist um, pretty much as long as I can remember. Even when I was a child, um, I was always dabbling in crafts and art, dance, theater, etc. And I always thought I was going to be a painter. So I ended up going to uh, Emily Carr Institute of Art and Design, which is now a university based in Vancouver, BC. And I was pretty certain that I was going to become a painter. I was just obsessed with the painted um, world. Um, I grew up actually in Germany and my family immigrated to Canada when I was about five and a half. So I did have the wonderful opportunity to spend time in museums, both when I was a child as well as whenever we went back to visit. Um, And both of my uh, my parents are artists. My mother is a textile designer and my father is a photographer and painter. um, And I would 
say multidisciplinary artist as well. So I grew up in a very artistic household. Um, when I when I landed at Emily Carr, um, I started to do a kind of experimentation in different mediums because we had that opportunity. So I dabbled a little bit in animation. Uh, I took printmaking and, you know, various um, other classes. And I'm sure other people who've gone to art school know what that is like, getting your hands messy and dirty in all of these different areas. Um, when I graduated, um, I, I hit the ground running. Um, I was really determined. Um, I received commercial representation in Vancouver straight out of graduating with my with my BFA and then just basically was on the path and painted um, pretty much seven days a week, 10 hours a day um, in a studio in Vancouver uh, for about, I guess it would have been after graduation, um, 11 years. Uh, and then I started to become a little bit disillusioned with the art world um, in Vancouver. I also realized because I was a Luddite and I was doing some part-time teaching um, at the time and I started to realize I'm going to be left behind if I don't start to learn more about the digital space. Uh, at the time, um, I mean, I didn't, I never did any work with digital technology. I didn't, my computer, you know, was reserved for emails. Um, I had a flip phone for the longest time and relied on a pager to communicate. Um, and so I decided to go back and get my master's uh, kind of as a mature student, I guess. Um, I uh, applied to a number of programs and then ended up moving, packing my tiny Geo Metro. I'm not sure if anybody out there knows what that car is. It's a We used to call it the Bean, packed that to the rafters and then drove from Vancouver out to um, Ontario, which is thousands and thousands of kilometers. So across halfway across the country um, and started this program. Now, when I arrived there, um, I had to show work to introduce myself to the program and the other students and at the time I was painting these really large canvases which I couldn't really afford to bring with me but I had just been in a residency up in the Yukon um, where um, I was painting but it was so beautiful and so I started to do these ridiculous performances in the snow and maybe I'll get back to those uh, a little bit later um, but I decided to show those video works instead so when I arrived in this program Everybody thought I was a video artist. It was terrifying. I didn't actually think about that. And then I was like, oh no, I, you know, I, I have no experience in video art. So I took all the digital classes when I arrived and just started to realize all of the affinities that painting and painted space has with producing video. And it became to a, a space that I was no longer afraid of, but just was really excited about the potential of having the length of time to be able to explore something rather than just a still image. Um, and I think that also made me realize all of that dance training and theater that I'd done, there was finally a place to integrate that into my artwork. So that's actually how I became a, a video artist, um, is that it, not, not that it was forced upon me, but my faculty um, advisors were always kind of hinting that maybe my video work was more interesting and stronger than some of the painting work I'd been doing. Um, and so I just took the dive, I took the plunge. Um, and then some of the work that I was doing in my master's, um, I was encouraged to submit it to film festivals. And I was like, oh, there's no way that film festivals will pick this up. And I was so surprised that film festivals started showing the work and that's, that's my story. <laughs> Yeah, I love your work. I've watched, I think, just about everything I could find uh, online of yours. And you're not new to filmmaking. I mean, uh, some of your work, I think I saw it dated as early as 2011. That's right. Yes. 
And so those were the very first videos that I filmed up in the Yukon when I was doing those first initial um, experiments. And actually, funnily enough, I was just telling my uh, my students about this. Actually, my first film was made when I was probably about seven or eight. Um, I don't know if you remember when uh, VHS and Beta had just come out and my dad purchased a, a Betamax and the Betamax came with a video recorder. And so you would have to take the whole player, the machine, strap it on your shoulder and then have this giant uh, kind of camcorder video uh, camera. So I did make a very um, short uh, let's say, <laughs> visually difficult to watch film of me running through bushes <laughs> with this camera. So I do, uh, that would have been my first film at, at that young age. But I never touched filmmaking between that time and um, apart from the animation experiments I did in my undergrad. So yes, 20, 2011 would count as my first uh, kind of work that went out into the world. Oh, that's funny. You know, I've, like I said, I've watched your work and I've seen uh, stills and I've, uh, you know, listen to your TEDx talk, which we will discuss. Um, it's funny because it, it seems like that's been the story of your filmmaking existence is to lug all this stuff around, you know? Yes. And you know how that started. And thank you, by the way, for <laughs> undertaking, uh, kind of digging in and, and watching some of some of the work. Some of it's quite uh, durational and um, I, I'm not, um, I guess, di difficult in, in certain conceptual, conceptual ways. But I, I really do appreciate that labor you've put in to become familiar with my catalog. Uh, and in terms of the lugging of the equipment, that, that came about just because I didn't have any money. Uh, and so when I started, um, I basically had to rely on myself for everything. Uh, so I would create these costumes and props. Uh, and I knew that the best light was uh, right when the sun rises. Uh, and in Canada, I should mention that most of the year, that's ex it's extremely cold <laughs> when, the when the sun rises. Uh, so I would just have to rely on myself to, to lug everything to, uh, to my location. So I would scout a location, then I would get up really early and trudge ever um, trudge carrying all of this stuff. So that includes like the tripod, the camera, potentially props, sometimes very large props. The heavy, heaviest thing I've carried is about 20 feet of rolled up red carpet, which <laughs> I built this special backpack for to strap on these giant rolls. And uh, I, I would put it on my back sitting down and then it would be very difficult to actually even stand up with the, with the weight of it. So I would always have to plan to have locations where I didn't have to walk all too far. Um, and I've also, you know, carried things like a giant inflatable swan and um, so sometimes it's very good that I'm doing this uh, at the break of dawn because it is rather embarrassing and I'd have to do a lot of explaining if I if I ran into people along the way. But yeah, it was mainly a, a money thing that I didn't wasn't able to pay anybody. And because I was working on my own, I was very reliant on the weather. Uh, so there's a lot, you know, you can't really plan for that. Um, if I have to phone somebody at 3 a.m., okay, today's go time. It's not very realistic. Uh, so that's how that came about. Um, and using myself in my video was also a necess necessity uh, that I was available and my labor was cheap. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's that's kind of some of the framing I want to give of your work is that uh, when you check out Lisa's work, you're going to find that um, Lisa, at least I'm assuming you film all your own work yourself and you star in your films and one of the things you have to lug with you is a bunch of costuming 
which is in the form of some really fancy clothes. Uh, you have evening gowns and uh, looks like cocktail dresses and some really nice clothes. And you always go on location. And these locations, folks, can be the beach, can be, looks like about two feet deep of snow, <laughs> desert or sand dunes, forest, industrial parks, and basically you name it. Lisa has been there with her camera gear and has filmed herself doing all kinds of interesting things. Am I, am I correct in this? Oh, absolutely. And I, I maybe would adjust the word stars in, in the work. I always see myself more as like a, a stand-in for a type or a trope. Um, so I, I always try to be just be in the work without trying to act too much. There's somewhere I really play with that boundary of what is a performance? What is acting? What is being? You know, what what does it mean to be a female in control of her image on the screen? So I really play with that idea of um, the gaze and also both being the person behind the camera and in front of the camera. It set up, sets up this very strange um, situation in terms of the history of the gaze and female on, um, on screen. Um, but yeah, the, the gowns and the costumes, actually, I'm not sure if you have Value Village um, down in the States, but it's a giant um, chain of thrift secondhand clothing. So that's where most of my clothes come from. I'm constantly there going through uh, the racks and I'll often buy things without knowing what I might use it for. So I have a storage room that's basically like a costume closet, costume and prop closet. <laughs> it's filled to the rafters. It was like, if you open the door, things will come tumbling out at you. Um, and I reuse a lot of things as well that, I, that I've collected over the years. And then every once in a while, I'll be like, oh, this is the perfect thing now for this dress that I purchased or found or something interesting that, that I made or built um, a number of years ago. So I've also been repurposing, uh, you know, sculptures and things that I made uh, 15 years ago while I, I was doing some sewn um, sculptures um, back at that time. And so I'll tr um, open those up and make them into something else. So I'm really interested in the idea of repurposing and things often look very different on, on screen than they do in reality. So a lot of those gowns are <laughs> actually quite cheaply, cheaply made. And I'm always so surprised that they do end up looking quite glamorous. Um, and I like that play of the the illusion of the camera, right? It can really elevate uh, everyday things. Um, and I, I'm really fascinated um, by, by that as well, the, the cinematic and how lights and staging and all of that can make something look quite grand. That's in fact really uncomfortable, um, really basic. Um, I mean, when I go into some of these locations, it's extremely cold a lot of the time. There's mosquitoes, the sand or the ground is really soft. So I'm, I also have to really think about the utility of some of the costume items. For example, walking in high heels, I'm often using that, uh, that feminine image uh, and the displacement also of like glamour and high heels in the quote unquote the wild um, of, of of nature. I'm um, I'm really interested in this um, kind of un 
not matching our expectations to to the to the location um i suppose and maybe i can talk a little bit more about that uh, because i am very conscious that i'm a settler uh, i'm currently living on treaty 6 territory here uh which is uh, the traditional homeland of many um, indigenous groups uh as well as the homeland of the metis and so as a settler body um working in these landscapes i'm very very aware um, um, of of the displacement of my body and how film and cinema and images often take ownership um, but I'm I'm just a visitor I'm an uninvited guest in these spaces so I also want to highlight some of that um, some of those socio-political um, kind of um, feelings or, or sensations, discomforts, uh, problematics in, in the work um, is that's very, very important to me working here in this territory. Yeah, I think it's kind of fun when I watched your work that um, you don't mind, first of all, you're extremely fit. And, you know, I don't know if it's from working out or carrying all this stuff around and trudging through the snow because, you know, Walk, I don't know if a lot of people know this, especially people in warmer climates, living in and walking through snow and stuff, that burns a lot of calories. So if you want to really get <laughs> fit, that's what you need to do. <laughs> Absolutely. And I, just if I could, if I could jump in there too, I mean, I have gotten into situations that were not entirely safe. Um, I, I made one project where I was running through snow in a wedding gown uh, and the shoes that I were in were these little open toed high heels um, and the snow was almost up to my knees. Uh, and so by the time, and because all of the transportation methods had broken down because of this giant snowfall and I had wait, wait, I was waiting for the snowfall because I really wanted to have this idea of a white on white. So I wanted a complete whiteout for the, for the framing. And by the time I had walked to the location, uh, that was about 20 minutes from my home and uh, filmed this, I was running, crossing the frame several times in this wedding dress. I was realizing sometimes you get into the headspace of I'm, you just go and you do it. Um, and once you're in that space, you kind of lose track of what your body is actually doing and saying and maybe calling help, help. Uh, and I, I, at that point, I didn't realize that my feet had actually started to lose sensation. Um, and it wasn't until I tried to change out of those shoes and into my boots that I realized, uh oh, I'm I'm potentially in trouble because I could no longer use my hands. They had started to really freeze up as well. So by the time I got home, actually, I had a mild case of what we call frost nip. It's the stage that happens before frostbite. But my toes did start to go get a little bit of that dark tinge. And I was in a hot bath for like a number of hours and it took me all day to warm up. I have never felt so cold in all my life. So since then, I've become quite a bit more careful about what I'm doing because it was a little bit of a little bit of a scare I'd still say it was worth it um, for the for the sake of the piece but yes it is it is quite something it's something else that you have to consider when you're working um, in, um, in in the north uh, and with these weather conditions and alone I mean that's what's so scary is that I saw you in the snow and I thought okay hopefully that's near something you know a, a park or a a place where there's some civilization, but some of those places look pretty remote. So, I mean, it's hard to tell from the camera angle exactly where you are, but yeah, when you go trudging through, you know, two feet thick snow piles and, uh, you know, you're outside in one of your films, 
being filmed while it's snowing. And I mean, I just don't know how you ever get warmed up from all that. <laughs> <laughs> I've got very warm jackets and mitts. And the other thing that you uh, have to be aware of, too, is that the camera battery uh, runs out very, very quickly at those cold temperatures. Uh, so I haven't had to rely on this because I'm usually in and out pretty quick. Um, I do plan now um, kind of the timing and how long I can last. I have a, a pretty good sense of that now. But um, a trick that I got from another filmmaker here um, uh, working in Canada is that you attach those little warming packs for your hand and feet. You can t attach those around your camera body to where the, where the battery is and it will greatly extend uh, the battery life of your, um, of your camera. But speaking to the illusion of the camera, I find it fascinating, right? Like some of those locations are quite remote. Um, some of my films I actually drove across Canada and was filming in some very uh, far away spots um, that uh, definitely were out in what we call the boonies. Um, but some of those places are actually urban places. So for example, there's um, in a film called Red Carpet, there's a scene and it looks like I'm at the top of a mountaintop. Uh, and that was actually fil um, filmed in the city in just a sand pit. Uh, and the way that I angled the camera, it looked like a mountaintop. So there I was, you know, quite close. I was able to park my car. And uh, so it's it's quite fun, too, for me, knowing the background. Oh, this was, you know, if you look the other direction, there's all the heavy machinery and the kind of urban, uh, the urban setting. But some some of the places, yes, they're they're quite, quite isolated and far away. Yeah, I noticed that in that in that film, that was one of I have notes on um, the one that I saw online is actually a trailer. And it's especially interesting because not only are you in your signature fancy clothes, as I call them, but it seems to progress through multiple seasons and some extreme locations, extreme conditions. And um, I mean, you, you jump in water, you trudge through the snow, as we talked about, you walk through sand dunes. And um, I'm just really curious, how long did it take you to make that film? Yeah, there's there's a number of my works, those ones that are cross season, a year and a half. Um, one, the red carpet film, I was doing that while I was still in my master's program. So that one was approximately, I guess, eight months around. Um, so I started in the in the fall and the winter and then filmed through to the uh, to the early uh, spring and into the summer. Um, another film that I made called The Knits, um, I was looking at familial ties with my mom. Uh, and what I'm wearing is actually a giant um, sweater that was knit by my mom and created from wool uh, from the cottage industries on Vancouver Island, which is in the west of Canada, where my parents live. Um, and I was really conscious of wanting to use those craft items um, produced by um, produced by women uh, and kind of foregrounding um, that idea of craft and art and filmmaking, because we do gender a lot of these ways of working in the arts. Crafts are often seen as a female um, profession. And it's often also undervalued. Uh, filmmaking is often seen as a male's world, uh, and we put a lot of value on filmmaking. So I was interested in um, having this push and pull, but also talking about my relationship, my very close relationship with my mom and uh, kind of creating an homage to her. Um, so the film itself um, is a close up of her hands. I'm knitting this very large uh, sweater and just a funny story connected to that is that it has extremely large arms 
uh, my mom used to hand make and knit um, all of my clothes when I was growing up. And she would always make the arms of my sweaters extremely long because she always told me I had ape arms. <laughs> so I exaggerated that in the um, in the film. Uh, and while I'm wearing the sweater, and I should say it covers up my face as well. So I, I can't really see where I'm going in the film. And in the film, my mom holds on to uh, the one thread of the sweater. Um, and then the illusion is that I walk across Canada and she's standing on the West Coast. Uh, and then the sweater unravels uh, as I move across the country uh, because I've spent quite a, 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 a large amount of my adult years separated in distance. Uh, you have this in the US as well. We just are always having to deal with such an extraordinary amount of distance. But luckily with digital technologies, we're allowed to keep that connection going. But I, I really wanted to articulate that in a visual sense that we're still connected. It's a type of umbilical cord, this wool. Um, but there's this extreme distance between people um, in, um, in Canada. Um, and so that film was actually filmed over the course of about a year and a half, two years, because I had to film the knitting of the sweater and then um, I had to location scout I drove across the country by myself and found all the places I wanted to film and then I drove across in actually 10 days and did all of the filming um, in 10 days across so sometimes there's a lot of pre-planning um, if it's a more involved project like that sometimes the video projects happen in one afternoon um, but those are those are more rare I'd say they're the exception um, generally speaking um, the works take me quite a while to to do yeah it's um i mean you put yourself through a lot for your work i mean it's unbelievable but you know it, it really it comes through that it's not just a, a thrown together work i mean it's you can tell that there was a lot that went into it in making it and then in editing i mean it's uh it's a major undertaking and and you should get rewards for that because i mean uh it's you know, it's a tr tremendous amount of work and, and they're just so well done. I, I love them. Like I said, that's why I wanted to talk to you. I, I started checking out your work and thought, oh, I have to talk to you. And there, how Lisa and I got connected, uh, I know uh, some folks want to know these kinds of things. Lisa actually entered a film into the Experimental Film Fest, the 2023 upcoming film festival later this year. And her film is called Signs of Our Times. And I watched it and I loved it. I just, I, I cracked up when I saw it because it was, the audio track is so fun. And, and the way you're walking through these different locations is hilarious. And speaking of being fit, come on. I mean, it takes, I don't know if people have ever held their hands above their head, uh, but that is quite exhausting to walk and hold your hands above your head, you know, <laughs> it really is. I mean, that's, it's really horrible. And, uh, cause they do that in basketball training. They make you run around and walk around with your hands above your head. And, um, I'm told that's a punishment in the army. They make you walk around with, you know, holding your rifle above your head and stuff. So, I mean, it's, that is quite, um, it's quite physical. All the things you do are, are quite physical. And I just want to say that, it certainly comes through in your films. But um, the, anyway, that's how Lisa and I got connected was through this film called Signs of Our Times. And um, we'll talk about that in a couple of minutes. But you mentioned something about your camera battery. What kind of camera do you use, if you don't mind me asking? Yeah, absolutely. So I use a Nikon uh, D810. Um, 
810. Um, that's the camera that I purchased probably, I guess it would have been around 2013, 2014. Um, when I graduated from my master's uh, program um, to make some extra money, I was actually a wedding photographer's assistant. Uh, and so it was was a camera that I purchased both to be able to better do that job and then it became my workhorse uh, camera. Um, and I've recently also invested in the Lumix uh, G6, which I haven't had a chance to work with yet, but I'm really excited to get my hands on. So yeah, I'm I'm all about the DSLR, um, mainly because it's a little bit smaller and, um, and lighter. Uh, it's easier for me to uh, carry around and it also allows me to work with photography as well, which 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 I love to do. Um, and um, um, yeah, so that's that's the gear that I that I use. I've inherited quite a number of prime lenses um, from my from my dad. I mentioned that he was a photographer, and so I do actually um, use those um, some of the time. Um, and obviously, the situation is going to determine what lens I'm using. Um, but yeah, so I, I've been very fortunate that I that I have this kind of these old beautiful lenses that I use um, with this uh, really great camera body. Um, and actually, something that you had talked um, talked about just now. Um, Ken, in terms of the way that we connected, I was actually personally really curious of what may, made you become so interested in experimental film and, and speaking with um, experimental filmmakers. Uh, and I was wondering if you would share a little bit of that, that, that story with me as well. Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, I think people who follow the podcast have heard some of this before, but it's kind of interesting. I got interested in experimental film through... Uh, I, it was kind of an accidental search. This was years ago on um, YouTube. When YouTube kind of first came out, people started loading up videos. And I was searching for something. I can't even remember what it is now. I was trying to figure out how to make a film using these. Um, I had two little Panasonic cameras. I can't even remember the the brand. I'm the uh, model now. But they used the, the mini DV tapes. And... I was researching something and came across some unusual films and I started watching those and I was fascinated by the, the experimental stuff. And so I started kind of being obsessed with watching those. And then a friend of mine told me about Maya Darren and said, you should watch meshes of the afternoon. And so I yeah. did. And I was immediately hooked, not only on her and her films, but I mean, just experimental films in general. So that's kind of where I came from. She sort of, in a way, resembled my mother when she was young. So there was kind of that kind of connection there as well. So it was, it was kind of interesting. So that's how I got interested in experimental film. Now, the, the festival <laughs> and podcast, the podcast came out of the festival. I thought there's hardly anybody doing experimental film stuff. So I'm going to do that you know, as a podcast, because I like podcasting. I've been doing it for a, quite a while. Uh, but as far as the festival, what happened was, and I, I was never going to create a festival, but uh, a few years ago, probably five years ago or so now, um, I was, I had make, started making experimental films of my own and submitting them around to festivals. And I got into a few and there was one in Oklahoma. We were living in Oklahoma at the time. I'm now in North Carolina. And there was one out in western Oklahoma, and I asked the curators, I said, do you guys accept experimental films? And they said, yes, we love them. I said, okay, cool. So I sent them one, one of mine that was an award-winning film that had been accepted at multiple festivals. And I thought, 
you know, I told them, I said, hey, you know, if if this if you guys screen this or whatever, you know, I'll be glad to come out and, and speak at the festival, you know, local local people because they get films from all over the world. And I thought it'd be kind of cool to have a somewhat local filmmaker, you know, speak. So I was just kind of offering that up. Well, I mean, you know, usually when you enter a film into a festival, it may be months before you hear anything back because there's a notification date. Let's say that the festival is in, you know, September 15th, let's say, but the the notification date will be August 15th. That way it gives the filmmakers time to show up for the festival and so on. Well, I think I got a rejection in like three days from this festival. And I was like, what? And I wrote the guy back and I said, what's up? I said, you know, what happened? He goes, well, we feel like that, you know, he gave me some stuff and he said, you know, there's no real story to it. And I go, you do realize it's experimental, right? I said, that's kind of the thing. He goes, well, we feel like all films need a story. I go, except experimental films, which I mean, Andy Warhol made a nine hour long film of the Empire State Building. And, you know, uh, Stan Brackage, one of the most famous experimental filmmakers, glued moth parts to his, the celluloid on the 16 millimeter film roll. And, and what a beautiful film that is. Yeah. And, and you know, I was just really frustrated. And I, I, I told him, I said, are you serious? I said, dude, this that's not what experimental film is. I said, people just take film strips and, and, and treat them with chemicals and scratches. And, and, you know, and I said, that's an abstract film. He goes, well, we just, you know, uh, and I just didn't want to argue with him. I, mean, I go, fine, fine, whatever. So I'll start my own festival. And so I did. <laughs> and it's very successful. I mean, it's uh, in its fourth year. Uh, the podcast is in its third season, about to start the fourth here in a couple of months. And, you know, it's it's been a lot of fun. I've met a lot of cool people like yourself and like we were talking about before the podcast. Experimental filmmakers are all extremely intelligent people. I mean, just absolutely brilliant. I mean, usually they have a great sense of great senses of humor, uh, very intelligent people. I mean, many, many college professors, as a matter of fact, you yourself being one. And I've met some incredible young people who make films, you know, who are just starting out. And I've met very famous filmmakers and it's just, it's been a hoot. I mean, it's a lot of fun. I love making experimental films. I've been making some found footage ones and, um, you know, I, I find, uh, find the whole thing fascinating. I love, I love making films, you know, both narrative and experimental. And it's just, you know, and that's, that's how it happened. It's just kind of random. Like it seems like everybody else, just like you. I mean, it, it just kind of happens to you. You're listening to the Experimental Film Podcast with Ken Hess. And now, back to the show. Well, as an artist, I just say thank you so much for um, putting, for, like, producing a venue for us to show this type of work. Because I find that even when there's an experimental category at some festivals, uh, you know, it's, it's sometimes the films, like you say, they aren't really experimental that are being shown at those festivals. Um, they might be a little bit different or quirky, um, but like a truly experimental art venue uh, is more challenging to 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 find, most definitely. 
Um, and I, I totally agree with you that there's such a wealth of material, really interesting work that really makes you think about the world, uh, our identities, uh, politics, um, but in really subtle ways that kind of hit you on an effective level or maybe a level that goes beyond uh you know, literal, literal storytelling, but that we understand in deeper, elevated, different ways. Um, we, we sense the films, we understand them, we know them, we sense them in our bones. Uh, and so I'm, I'm just a huge fan also of experimental film work. And it's, Actually, I, through working and showing work at some um, festivals internationally, I mean, there is like a very tight knit group of experimental filmmakers that communicate and we see each other at different festivals. And so I've uh, had the pleasure of being able to follow just tremendously creative and, as you say, very intelligent um, individuals um, over the years. And it's, it's been so rich. Uh, and with a huge, with a huge payoff. Yeah, I really love speaking with experimental filmmakers, and I, I could just absolutely talk for hours. Someday, I'm going to have to um, come up with some sort of a conference in the middle of the country so that as many people who can can travel there. So it's shorter, you know, because if you're over over here on the far east coast, and I'm about as far east as you can go without being in Maine, um, <laughs> you know, it's it would be prohibitive for people in California to come here, but maybe not to the middle of the country somewhere. But anyway, I just want to spend some time speaking to and collaborating with other experimental filmmakers. But that's a weird thing about this genre of films is that many experimental filmmakers don't use a crew, don't use a cast like yourself. I mean, it's, it's you, it's a camera, it's some props, it's some gear and, you know, there's no collaboration, but I, I think collaboration in experimental film would be interesting and could be interesting. But you're right. Oh. A, a lot of a lot of what passes for experimental film isn't really experimental, just to answer that one. Yeah, but that that said, I mean, the the wealth of um, films that uh, and festivals that are out there, um, I haven't been able to travel to to all of them that I've that I've shown in. But just that experience of traveling and, and meeting people from all around the world is also just in and of itself, just a tremendous um, opportunity of sharing knowledge and craft and um, passion. Yeah, you know, the film festival here in town, uh, it's a relatively small town, but it's it's sold out the past two years. And, you know, we're packed into this uh, place called the Bank of the Arts, which is an art gallery. And they allow me to, to set up there and everything. And, you know, we have beer and wine and food and, and prizes and things. And it's it's an engaging atmosphere. And we have filmmakers who show up and introduce their films. And, you know, it's a lot of fun. People love it. And every year people ask me the same thing. They go, when are you going to do this again? I go, well, it's going to be a year from now. They go, oh, man, this is really fun. You should do more of these. And I said, well, I'm trying to get set up to do, uh, we have Friday night art, art walks um, once a month. And I'm trying to get set up in agreements with some filmmakers to show short films on a loop in a particular venue. And people can just walk in at random and, and watch what they want and, and then leave and go to the other galleries and things. But just have two or three short films running on a loop, you know, like they do in some museums. And I think that would be a lot of fun for people just to walk in and, and check out some cool work and, you know, maybe have a little flyer there for them to read, uh, you know, about the films they're watching. 
That sounds absolutely fabulous. Uh, and I, it sounds like the festival, I, I haven't visited it myself, but it sounds like just the perfect event for really sociable networking and getting to know one another uh, in a really uh, enjoyable atmosphere as well. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. So the signs of our, I'm sorry, signs of our times uh, entered into the Experimental Film Fest. And I have to tell you, <laughs> like I said, as soon as I saw it, I wrote you an email. And I rarely write people who are in the festival unless I write to everyone. If you get a letter or you know, an email from me, it's generally sent to everyone in the festival who has submitted. But you, I wrote to you individually and said, I have to talk to you because this is just too much. I mean, I don't want to spoil it, but if you'd like to describe the film um that would be really cool. I mean, as much as you want or as little as you want to describe it, I'm just, I'm, I was fascinated by it and um, it's, it's so much fun. So take it away. <laughs> oh, well, th th thanks so much for that, Ken. And I was just thrilled to get your email because this is actually a work that's been seeing a lot of rejection. And as a filmmaker, I mean, one gets used to, to rejection, um, but this film more than others has, uh, has gotten rejection. And I've been really curious as to the, um, as to the reason um, why. It is a little bit longer uh, and maybe um, one can't quite figure out my positionality, which I think is a really important part of the, of the film. Um, so yeah, I can talk a little bit about it. Um, the soundtrack, and you had talked about it briefly um, earlier, uh, was actually, it's a public domain, um, it's an audio from a public domain video that was produced by the Calvin Company, uh, and they were an industrial film production company and supposedly from what I would could gather online this film your name here was actually uh, made for the company as an event for a special event uh, and it was a spoof of their own films so I love this idea they were actually making fun of the own their own materials their own films that they produced and I'm not sure if the if the audience is familiar with these type of industrial films I guess they would be like uh, public service announcements for products <laughs> And they're very sometimes over the top, you know, um, and they, they sell the American dream and these products and these ideas that you um, need to have to make your life better. Um, and uh, I, I, when I, when I stumbled across that soundtrack, and this is the very first time that I've actually used found audio, I generally record and uh, edit together my own audio, but I wanted to try something a bit new. And I just accidentally, because if for my classes with my students, we do some uh, found footage filmmaking uh, assignments, and I started to dig around the Prelinger archive um, and came across a lot of these kind of older um, older public domain works and was really excited by it. And I felt it was eerily also ahead of its time and kind of fit into some of the things that I was um, that I was interested in and looking at. Um, this idea of this pronouncement, this over-the-top um, kind of advertisement aesthetic for a way of life and a way of being in the world. That is quite, in my eyes, if we examine it carefully, quite problematic. So what I'm talking about it are statements such as these life affirmations, such as uh, live the dream. You know, they're, they're quite simplistic and they seem really positive and, oh yes, I should live the dream. But if you take a look at that a little bit more closely, actually that's very exclusionary 
binary. There's only, uh, you know, a very specific part of the population, uh, privileged population, that actually has the means and the ability and the opportunities to, to live one's dream. Living one's dream also for me means, you know, acquiring land, acquiring property and these things and taking over things, making yourself seen. So um, I spoke earlier about being kind of an uninvited settler here on this land. Um, so I really wanted to set up this scenario that becomes a little bit uncomfortable and we're not sure how those life affirmations are situated. So for example, I take the idea of, you know, live the dream um, and I'm walking through a uh, farmer's um, field um, and I have the the, the word steal the dream instead. So I've made on some of these life affirmations slight adjustments where they suddenly mean something else. I'm this kind of blonde spokeswoman, um, and we often see this, this kind of, you know, glamour advertising these things, but then you start questioning, okay, who owns the land? What am I selling? Uh, where, where do these messages come from? How are they influencing us in the way that we think about the world? Um, and I'm especially, you know, aware of our feelings of entitlement, um, particularly um, settler culture. Um, this is the space. I can take all the resources. So I'm, I'm hoping that through some of these twists on these life affirmations I'm bringing attention to that and I feel that the found audio uh, the cheekiness of the audio uh, the nationalism that's put forward in that audio is also kind of reflected under the surface um, so as another um, example um, I have um, at the very end of the film I carry business as usual so everything you know we have all of these ideas about moving forward making things better but in the at the end of the day we just you know follow these old patterns um, uh, and economic structures um, and don't really move forward or anywhere. Uh, I have a sign that reads um, the age of truth. Uh, so again, what, what are the images that we absorb in the media, in movies, on television? Um, who owns those? Who've put those um, into the world? Um, what are they actually saying? What are they selling, etc.? So and are they the quote unquote truth and reality? Um, and filmmaking is all about manipulating reality. I spoke earlier about taking these landscapes and making them look like something else, taking this idea of the glamour and misplacing it, this glamorous woman in the landscape, those two things don't belong. Um, and for me, I'm also interested in that we expect them to fit together because we've been taught that women are nature, women belong in nature, but actually I'm hoping that there's an edge of like hilarity uh, in the fact that I'm in high heels and I'm in the middle of this wild and it's really uncomfortable. And um, so that displacement and that feeling of discomfort is what I'm hoping comes through, but I also lightheartedness. Like I really want the audience to um, see the humor in, in, in these things. So I think with all of my work, there's so many references that I try to link together. Um, that sometimes they're quite vague and you don't know where I'm positioned. Maybe it'll, the work makes one a little bit uncomfortable or think about things in different ways. But um, it's those scenarios that I'm, that I'm really interested in. No, I totally got it. As soon as I saw it, like I said, I watched about 30 seconds of it. And I immediately, I was laughing all the way through. I thought, you know what? This is one of the most clever films I've ever seen. And maybe that's why the rejection rate is because... <laughs> Honestly, you know, I hate to say it. I'm not going to say it. I'm just going to say this. I'm going to say it resonates with people who get it. That's all <laughs> I'm going to say. 
<laughs> so without saying it, I think I've said it, but I'm, I will tell you, I thought it was very clever. I thought it was extremely, uh, I mean, technically from a filmmaking, technical filmmaking standpoint, it was extremely difficult to make because not only when you have these words above you, when you walk to the side or if you, uh, you know, it, it, they follow your movements. It's not just, you know, it's not just something you stuck on there. It actually looks like you're holding it and they follow your movements. And that's, that's hard to do. I mean, that, that must've taken a really long time and, and some tedium to, to get that done. And some people, like I said, appreciate it. I knew what you were going for because you're in these, you know, beautiful dresses. You know, some of them look like they're, I mean, I know you buy them uh, wholesale now, but I mean, it really, I mean, there's some of them that just look fantastic. And it's like, wow, this is crazy because you're just walking through these horrible environments in, you know, heels and, and these elegant dresses. And, and uh, it's it's hilarious to me. I mean, because it's so sarcastic and it's it, it does poke fun at sort of this established, um, you know, we're being beat to a frazzle with advertisement and we're, we're expected to, you know, absorb all that. We're expected to absorb the words that, that flash on the screen where we're expected to uh, immediately connect with the product because of the spokesperson. You know, you have this woman in an elegant dress and you think, Oh, well, that's something that I, I, you know, I'm interested in this, you know, I'll, I'll do whatever she says because, you know, it's an elegant person in a dress. It's not somebody in a, you know, uh, a pair of scrubs or something, you know, it's different. The, The message is different. So, Anyway, it's, I think it's extremely well done and immediately connected with it. And that's why I had to quickly write you a note and say, I have to talk to the person who made this. Oh, well, thanks so much, Ken. Do you mind if I respond to just a couple of things? Sure. Um, with the, with the technical aspect, I do want to give a shout out because this is one of the works that I actually didn't do completely on my own. Uh, so since I started filmmaking, um, I have actually gotten married <laughs> to to somebody who was uh, one of the kind of main uh, directors and managers of a film festival in Germany, um, and that um, I got to know over a number of years. So that's kind of a, fu- a fun story uh, with the community. But also, my my husband does help me with some of the um, turning on of the camera. Um, um, for, for help me with some of the turning on of the camera and being there for some of these scenes. Um, and secondarily, for this work, um, I was working with one of my now graduate students um, in interdisciplinary studies, who was helping me with some of the compositing, um, as well as the tracking, the motion tracking for some of these. So the way that it was made is that we did a number of tests to figure out what type of, um, I carry a board, I'm actually holding a, a physical board in the scenes that has some targets painted on it. And we tried a number of things like a board that had tennis balls attached to it as these kind of points for motion tracking. And we found that these kind of targets in four areas of the board work the best. So I actually carry this board um, and then we went through a process of tracking the board. And it was quite challenging because we were tracking a 2D image, but then um, compositing a 3D um, word that we had designed um, in, um, in both 
Cinema 4D, which uh, kind of attaches and works well with um, After Effects, Adobe After Effects, which, uh, which is a special effects software. Um, and um, then I also had another student of mine um, help me build some of the, the, digital, um, the digital words letters. So when you're, when you're also, when you're at a university, um, I've just recently um, got this job about six years ago um, and I've now built up a digital area. And so now I've been having the opportunity to pull some students um, into my work and my practice. Um, and I both receive a lot of you know, labor um, and um, passion and input from the students. Um, but I feel like it's a, it's a nice exchange, right? Because they learn how to think about production and um, learn the skills that they can then take forward into their own art practice. So I did want to put a little bit of a shout out because we had talked so much about my producing my films all on my own. And I did for most of them um, up until the last few years. Um, and lately I have been working with Ki-Hang Lian uh, and Leanne Reed and my husband, um, uh, Michael Flake, um, on some of these um, projects um, in small ways. I'm an outdoors person. I, I try to ride my uh, fat bike. If you don't know what a fat bike is, it's one of those bikes that has really fat wheels so that you can ride it in oh, the yeah. snow. Yeah, those are Where cool. I am here, we have snow probably about seven seven months of the year. So um, I've, I've become a really avid um, biker and I do a little bit of cross-country skiing and some jogging, but I actually was a break dancer for many years and maybe that's those residual muscles I think are left over from that time. I, I kind of hurt my back doing that, um, but I loved that community. And so being in these fancy dresses is also very out of character for me. I'm a little bit more uh, comfortable in more casual, <laughs> casual clothes. So um, I always find it uh, kind of fun to play dress up in these in these gowns, which which really aren't part of my um, everyday attire. Let's just say that. That's funny because you know one of the significant moments in one of your films uh it was calendar girls and you know there's all different seasons and all different uh outfits that you have on but the one thing that i thought it was funny and maybe it's one of those um behind the scenes moments uh you're standing on ice with i think you have buckets over your head in all these pictures yes there's something especially. else on my head yeah yeah you have a, a bucket or something on your head. And yes, I you, do. A red bucket. <laughs> you fall through the ice. Yes. <laughs> and I was like, okay, that wasn't supposed to happen, but I'm glad you kept that. Um, but what's really funny about it is you don't break character. You just, you know, you, you step through the ice, you get back up on the ice, which to me would be really, really uh, precarious. But uh, anyway, and you just put the bucket back and then you go right back into your pose. It just, it just killed me. I love that. So was that what that was? Is kind of a blooper or, or uh, behind? Well, the I'm going to disappoint you a little bit because I did look for a place where potentially I thought I might fall through. <laughs> <laughs> and I did check all of this out ahead of time to see how deep the water was and that I wasn't putting myself into, into any danger. But then I actually did go to a part of the ice where I saw it was already breaking up. So I was hoping that I would fall through, ah. quite honestly. So sometimes um, I have um, accidentally slipped or things have happened. But in this case, yeah, I did actually pre-plan pre for that because I, I wanted there to be, I, I wanted them all to be very awkward. I mean, that, that work, Calendar Girls, we always have this expectation that the calendar girl is going to be really sexy, really beautiful. Um, and in this 
uh, and kind of entertain us. As soon as we see kind of a female figure enter, you know, a stage, we're like, okay, I'm ready to be entertained. And it's usually graceful or, you know, really impressive. So uh, with my dance background, I really wanted to play with that idea. So each time I start dancing and the music starts, well, first of all, I can't see anything because I've got something over my head to hide my identity. But then there's always some sort of uh, disaster, uh, kind of quote unquote awkwardness or, or disaster that it's not the glamorous thing that we expect. So I really was just having fun with some of those uh, tropes of, of femininity. I just, you know, it's so ridiculous that we have these women. This is May and this is July for us to look at for these months. So I was being a little bit cheeky and I did actually print calendars um, uh, for that project as well. So I do sometimes think about um, having art exhibitions that are connected with the with the works. Uh, the works will sometimes screen in a gallery. So in this particular show, there was a large screening of the film and then and around the, the gallery were these calendars all open to a different page and people could also take a, a calendar uh, with them. Um, and I, I guess just the, uh, the humor in it is also that I was very small, a figure kind of hidden by the landscape and hidden with something on my head in in um, in these scenes and these frames. And maybe just to add to also, I, I should say that there are elements too of these things and um, communication media that I actually find are really terrific and creative and elements of the American dream also that are so positive um, and that have really helped us advance and move forward. So I do really want to articulate as well that I'm, I part participate in this idea of the American dream and the freedom and the possibility to do what you want. So I just wanted to articulate that because I think it might come across when I'm talking that I'm always just being very cheeky and dismissive um, and pointing out the problematics of uh, some of these aspects of our uh, culture. But I, I actually do also hope that my work shows the, the positives, the fun um, and um, the, the, the strength of these, um, these images and um, the possibility of those messages. Yeah, it's always fun. I, I like, like I said, I love your work because it is so fun, and it's, uh, you know, it is cheeky. It's a little sarcastic and a little, a little uh, tossing it back in the face of the establishment. I think so. It's absolutely. It's a lot of fun. I like that. So now it's time to get really serious. You uh -oh. <laughs> did a at at your university. You did a TEDx talk. And you discussed um, making films and you kind of talked through your process and stuff. But the most impactful thing you talked about was failure and how people perceive failure and the results of failure and how it affects our psyches. Could you kind of give us a, a short summary of, of that and your feeling about failure? Yeah, absolutely. Um, we have so many expectations of ourselves um, in society and we're terrified of others seeing weakness in us. But I feel like uh, we're not going to move forward unless we go into those uh, scary, uncomfortable places, uh, as well as personally. I mean, if I think about my own trajectory, uh, if I hadn't have like challenged myself and said, okay, I, I'm so terrified of technology, um, but I know, you know, deep down that if I don't like partake or participate, then I might get left behind. If I hadn't have had the, okay, well, I don't care if I'm not going to be good at it or what have you, um, I, I wouldn't be where I am now and I kind of see that with with my life if you don't dive in and just try something even at the fear of making a fool of yourself uh, you're not allowing yourself to grow and move forward um, and we're, we're really 
I think with because we live such social plugged in lives, right? We 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 post so much about our lives, which is very curated. I mean, what we what we post on social media is not our quote unquote reality in many cases. It's a very curated. It's almost like the, I see them very similar to art projects because we're filming and shooting things in a specific way, following certain trends or wanting to say something um, particular or, uh, you know, taking inspiration from other things that we see. Um, and But because we always have a sense that others are watching and we want to kind of fit into the culture, and I think it goes back to this idea, yeah, we do want to feel like we're part of a community uh, and we don't want to mess that up. We don't want people to think that we're weird. <laughs> <laughs> or that they don't want to, you know, accept us. Um, we want to feel comfortable. And also these systems, right, that we set up in society, like these are the things that we're allowed to do. We're allowed to do them at that time. This is the expectation of how we how we do things. And I see this also in filmmaking, right? There's these conventions, there's these um, narrative tropes, the hero's journey that we love because we know those stories. And so when we see them, they're comforting. In a way, we we know how it's going to end and that gives us a tremendous sense of comfort. Um, but if we just always see and watch the same things again and again, first of all, we're excluding particular stories that are also very rich and are offering different perspectives. Um, and um, But we're also limiting ourselves for seeing what the potential of our um, time on the planet um, could be. So I always feel like, okay, now, if I don't feel nervous about doing something, is it worth my while? I feel like I'm only going to get somewhere new or discover something hilarious, interesting, fun, new, if I put myself into situations where I set myself up for, for failure. Uh, and so I always encourage my students, don't try, to, uh, don't try to make something that already exists or fit into something. Really ask yourself, what is it that I want to say or experience or how is my perspective unique? And then you need to go out there and just do it. <laughs> um, and um, usually if you do that and you stay sincere to yourself, um, you come up with work that others can also see that sincerity and that passion. And also those works are innovative and interesting and they keep our society uh, moving moving forward. I agree. I agree completely. I, I, in fact, I think I might have even said on the podcast before in a, another episode that I don't really believe in failure. I think that really failure, and I don't, I'm not even sure what failure is anymore. After living this long, I look back and I used to think that many things were failures, but what they really are, what failure really is, if you, if you can call something failure, it's really an opportunity to learn. And it's just like rejection. You were talking about your, your films being rejected. And I write and I make films and so forth. And I I always feel like I've never been rejected. People talk about being rejected. And, and you know, if you think about someone, now I know she's not such a popular person anymore, but J.K. Rowling, or J.K. Rowling, however you say her name, who wrote the Harry Potter series. When the very first book she wrote she tried to sell that to, I believe it was 30 different publishers. And the 31st publisher accepted it and paid her $1,500. If she had thought that her first or her 10th or her 20th rejection was a sign of failure, she would have never sold that book. You would have never seen or heard of Harry Potter. So, you know, is rejection failure? I don't think it is. Is, and is there really such a thing as failure? I don't. I don't know. Like I said, after having lived this long, I feel like 
that failure is a is a made up word, possibly by people who don't try things. You know. <laughs> Yes, very well said. And isn't it interesting that we always say, oh, we can we can accept the failure, but we never really go, okay, well, what, what happens if we actually strive for failure? And I and try to articulate that in my talk. I don't know how well in the short period of time we were given. But, you know, why not make that as something that's just this wonderfully freeing and exciting creative uh, space and rather than accepting it actually go okay this is what I'm aiming for like if I don't feel nervous then uh, I'm not moving forward and maybe another thing that I'll, I'll say in terms of the rejection I, I learned very early on I became very suspicious uh, when I was still a painter uh, when I had exhibitions where everybody was like oh this is so wonderful I just love what you're doing it's so creative I I, I I, I actually saw that as like, oh, my work is not communicating properly. I, I actually get suspicious if everybody likes it and understands it because that's not what the work is about. Like, I want people to be uncomfortable uh, to think about things in, in new ways. So I think also that that idea of rejection, and I tell my students this all the time, you just keep putting the work out there. There are people that will, you know, get it and celebrate. And even if not, um, at the end of your day, when you're an artist and you've been, you know, making work, the work at the end of the day, you have to feel satisfied with what you've produced, that you followed your sincere uh, kind of path and intuition and drive. At the end of the day, when you're confronted with just yourself and your life, it's not really going to matter that much what other people have said, but you will be left, you know, in a space with, am I happy and am I satisfied that I gave it my all um, and followed my, followed my passion? So I always try to tell students not to get caught up in the public reception um, and to really stay true, because I think if you do that and you build a body of work, there are people that will get it and you will find that community that, you know, that that sense of satisfaction. I talked earlier also about wanting to feel like you are understood in a certain way. But I, I think that does come if you're if you're true to your vision. Yeah, and I think persistence pays off. I, I You know, no one is really an overnight success. It, it, I think it really bothers some artists, especially singers and actors they say well you're an overnight success it's like yeah but it took 10 years to be overnight successful you know yes i think that what especially young people need to realize is you know don't give up on something that's part of the process um you know whether you want to call it failure or rejection or whatever it is be persistent i mean think of willie nelson willie nelson was terribly unsuccessful in the first part of his career. I mean, he, you know, you talk about rejection, but he, he kept going. He knew, he knew he had something. And that's the thing about truly creative, intelligent people is they know they have something and they keep doing it. And, and marketing people will tell you, you know, ask any marketing person, advertising works because it's repetitive. It's out there, not just once. You can't just throw a film up on Vimeo and say, hey, world, watch my film. You know, it doesn't work like that. You have to create, first of all, a body of work. You have to create more than one. And you have to tell people about it. You know, you have to, you know, just like when they used to sell newspapers in big cities, extra, extra, read all about it. They didn't just throw papers down on the sidewalk, you know. I mean, you've got to, you've got to tell people. And that's why this podcast is important uh, to experimental filmmakers is because it's a way for people to learn about your work 
and you have to learn to talk about your work. And, you know, rejection aside or failure aside, keep doing keep doing something, you know, like that commercial says, just do it. And there's really no greater truth, I think, in the world than that is just do it. Absolutely. And it's going to be hard. <laughs> it's hard work. And as an artist, I mean, so many artists, uh, I think, can relate to this. You go through sometimes months, sometimes even years where where you become disillusioned or just you're exhausted um, and you just have to keep pushing through those times. Uh, the I always find the worst thing to do is to stop making work, even if you're making work that you don't feel is as good as it could be. Like you just need to keep producing work through those times. Um, it's it's hard work. It's also it's also a full time job. Um, and I think people don't realize. I always find it so interesting that I, I saw once a fashion magazine and um, they had the. Uh, the public was able to write in and express what their dream job was. And it turned out to be an artist. And the image they used was this uh, kind of woman. And I guess this is still in the back of my mind in this fancy dress in France, you know, on this, um, this tripod outside doing plein air painting. Uh, and it was just, you know, like this is everybody's dream job. It, it's sometimes marketed as or seen as something that's really easy and glamorous and we're following our passion and creativity. But, you know, there's drudge work. It is hard. You have to battle with yourself all the time. So I always say to students too, you know, it takes hard work and you have to stick with it. Uh, and all of that is just part part of it that is very true and I think I think that's one thing that we should teach in classes uh, the, maybe the first rule is be persistent be be consistent be persistent and keep doing what you're doing because if you truly feel like you have a vision and something to say you need to you need to keep at it don't don't give up because then no then you're then you're assured that no one will ever hear of your work or see your work. So, um, you know, and, and just like when certain people get, and I'm using air quotes here, get discovered overnight discovery, you'll know that they have a body of work, you know? Absolutely. <laughs> and it's like, well, you know, I've been doing this for a long time. You're just now realizing it. So yeah, that's, that's just the point I want to make is, is that, um, you should keep doing it, and if you need a venue, here it is. So, uh, anyway, could you tell us, uh, if you would, what you're working on now? Uh, sure. I, I've I've become very fascinated with the world of uh, TikTok. So I'm just in the kind of conceptualization um, space at the moment. Um, but I really like this short form video format. But I'm so confounded by the content. Um, I'm, I've also been watching a lot of reality TV just to familiarize myself with the world of the influencer uh, and these new reality TV shows. I, I just find them so fascinating. So uh, I do want to create a series of augmented um, TikToks, um, but to take some of the costuming and some of the conceptual art ideas and bringing them into that space, because I think they'll be very 
awkward <laughs> to put it lightly within that space so i'm just curious about that how that relationship or that is going to uh, play out um, i've also in my last project was started working with augmented content um, in the last exhibition that i did and i'm really interested in this idea of having live performances with pre-made um, digital content that interacts with me in space in real life so that you're kind of bringing animation and video right into a live performance space. So I've always, I think, been really interested in these intersections between these different ways of producing media. What is like performance art is quite different from, you know, performance for video. Um, you know, there's these different things. And I have in my artist statement that I work in these collisions of uh, these different media. Uh, so that's kind of in a nutshell. I don't have any uh, kind of more specifics that I can reveal at this point. They're just kind of these feelings that, I, that, I, that I'm going off at the moment. Um, my work is very iterative uh, and kind of develops as I start to build things. Um, so what these things are going to look like, I'm not entirely, um, not entirely sure. Um, but uh, the cheekiness and the fun uh, and all of those things will, will still be present uh, along with some of that social commentary. The other technology that I've become really interested in is the idea of the 360 video space. I've now released one 360 film that did go through the, uh, the through the film circuit uh, a couple of years ago called The Land of Milk and Honey. Uh, and so I've been really interested in this idea of performance for video, but that happening in the round because you have this space, like in real space, where the audience member can turn around and look into different directions. So having myself with these concurrently happening performances within a video space, uh, that that a, uh, an audience member can enter into. Um, I'm really interested in what that medium uh, can offer as well. So those are some of the uh, kind of things that I'm interested in pursuing over the next few years. And I'm just about to head into my first sabbatical. <laughs> so I'm really excited that this coming year, I really get to have a dedicated time to work on my research um, and my and my art production. So uh, teaching is a, is a lot of work and it becomes a compromise for finding that dedicated space for being able to produce work. It's part of our expected research outcomes to keep being active and producing work, but it's the time management that becomes very challenging when you're in uh, an academic space. So uh, this, uh, this um, sorry, but the, the words disappeared. Uh, the opportunity to have dedicated research time for a year is just such a gift. So I'm just so excited to see what this next year is going to bring. Yeah, I like that. I wish uh, they had that in, you know, other aspects like, you know, regular jobs like, at, uh, you know, companies and stuff. A sabbatical would be very cool. I think they call sabbatical now, you know, taking time off your job because, um, you know, probably the job won't be there when you get back. <laughs> oh, yes. So it's unfortunate. Everything is so precarious. Yeah. So um, please tell us how we can find your work. Uh, so I do have a website. Uh, I, with my limited time, I, I update it <laughs> fairly infrequently. Um, but my catalog of projects going uh, going back way back into my painting years actually is there. So it's very easy, just lisaburke.com. And my name is spelled L-I-S-A-B-I-R-K-E. So like Burke's the jeweler, but with an E instead of an S is how I like to tell people. Because uh, it is kind of an odd spelling. Uh, the name actually means birch tree in German. Uh, and I do have, if you search me out on the internet, just my name, Lisa Burke, L-I-S-A-B-I-R-K-E, you can find a series of other talks and artist talks, um, exhibition material, 
out there. And yeah, and you mentioned my TED Talk that can be found through TEDx. Uh, that's uh, it's connected with TED, but uh, produced by independently by universities. Uh, so the collection that I took part in was TEDx uh, USASC, so University of Saskatchewan. Great, thank you, and I really appreciate you coming on and speaking with me. Uh, you know, it's been great to get to know you, and please, and I make this offer to uh, every person who comes on the podcast, if you have another project you want to talk about or, you know, just another topic, please contact me, and I'll have you back on. Well, thank you so much for this opportunity, and as you mentioned, like, it's it. It's just so wonderful to be able to talk about and share our passion um, with uh, of experimental filmmaking. And it's just such a pleasure to talk to another filmmaker as well. Um, and I'm just, again, I know it takes so much energy to put out a podcast, to create a film festival. So I really do admire what you're, what you're doing, and I'm very appreciative. So thank you so much. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. And thank you for joining us for this 15th episode of Season 3 of the Experimental Film Podcast. Our guest today was filmmaker and artist Lisa Burke. Please contact me if you'd like to schedule an interview, sponsor the podcast, point me to some cool experimental films, or connect me to other experimental filmmakers. And we'll see you next time. If you would like to sponsor a podcast or schedule an interview, send an email to ken at experimentalfilm.info. Thanks for listening to the Experimental Film Podcast with Ken Hess.